Would you stand with me, please, as Anna comes this morning to read our scripture for us? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel 40 years. Then he rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. This is the word of the Lord from 1 Kings eleven forty-two through 43. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, may I just say it is great to be back. Thank you, church family, for allowing my family and I to go on vacation. Uh, we had a great time together. The, the main purpose for our trip up north was to have a memorial service for my wife's grandfather who passed away a few months ago. And we really just had a wonderful family time together and had a very worshipful time as we celebrated and gave thanks for our loved one. And so again, thank you for allowing us to do that. And also, I'm so glad that Mark Dance was here with you. I've heard a lot of good feedback. Uh, I listened to the message. It was a very timely message for us, a very timely message for our series. So I'm thankful for Mark Dance as well. But again, it is great to be back. And one of the phrases that we heard a lot and talked about a lot after Rebecca's grandfather's service was the, the phrase, defining moments. That came up in the service thinking back on our our lives and looking back on our lives and classifying certain times certain seasons or even certain little snapshots in in time as moments that were defining moments in our lives and as you look back over your own you certainly can think of some of those you look back and they're almost like waypoints on your journey to get you to where you are today and you say, if, if it weren't for those defining moments, I wouldn't be who I am. I would not be here. And, and at that defining moment, something changed, something turned, something was different. And defining moments can be good. They can also be hard. They can be painful. They can be difficult. But each and every one of us, the longer we live, the more we, we look back and recognize that we've had several of those defining moments along the way. Here we are in our journey through the Kings. And we've seen lots of defining moments for the people of God. And you may have thought like I did, are we ever going to make it through David and Solomon? I mean, we're halfway through the summer, and we've got a lot more names on this list to cover. But finally today, Solomon has been laid to rest, and we look forward now through the next generation over which Solomon's son Rehoboam is going to become king. To this point in our journey, of course, we, we can look back around 100 years to when the people came to Samuel and they demanded that they have a king appointed over them. In doing so, God said to Samuel, the people have rejected me as their true king, and so don't take it personally. They're calling for a human leader because they want to be like all the rest of the nations of the earth. And so God took control of this process. He led Samuel to a young man named Saul, and Saul became the first human king of the nation of Israel. Now Saul's reign as king, you'll remember, was less than stellar, to say the least. It was a very self-serving reign, and things get awkward when Saul is king because while he's still living, while he's still reigning, God speaks to Samuel again, and he says, I've rejected Saul as my king. Go to the home of a man named Jesse, and there you're going to find a new young man who's going to be king. And Samuel anoints David 
as the king of Israel while Saul is still officially in that position. When David finally becomes king, you'll remember that his reign as king was an up-and-down one. He had some very high moments. It was clear that God's hand was on him, that he was blessed, that God was going to use him to do some incredible, mighty things for his people. But David was far from perfect. He made some colossal blunders. He wasn't the best father, and in many ways, David's reign was checkered with his failures. In the end, however, we still remember David as a man after God's own heart because he repented. He said, not just I'm sorry, but, but God, I'm going to change. And, and those were defining moments for David to where still to this day, we not only call him a man after God's own heart, but we say Jesus is the son of David because he came from David's line. After David came his son Solomon, who reigned 40 years as king just like his father. Solomon was given more wisdom from God than anyone had ever had before. More riches, a bigger kingdom. Solomon had it made, but Solomon too made his mistakes. Not only did he fail at times as a man and as a father, but in the end, he worshipped false gods, dead gods and idols, as God had told his people time and again over generation after generation not to do. Solomon did not finish well. The high point of Solomon's kingship, though, was the temple. And that really becomes the central moment in the story of the kings because, because God's presence in their nation, in their community, in the city of David, has become most alive for them to see and experience. I love the way my friend Marissa described the temple. She said Solomon's temple stood for 360 years. It was massive and beautiful and everything that you would expect the earthly house of God to be. Gleaming white marble and gold-plated facades, bright painted columns adorned with pomegranates. This was a place where humanity was granted access to the presence of God. You would think from this moment on, there is nowhere else that the people would want to be but Jerusalem. There would be no other commitment, no other priority, no other relationship more important than the direct access they had to God here on earth through the temple where God had granted them this opportunity. But just like our hearts tend to be led astray, just like even in our own day we have our own idols that we bow down and serve, so the people of God struggled with fidelity to him. And we come today to around 922 B.C. when Solomon's son Rehoboam becomes the king through the bloodline. And unfortunately, Rehoboam is not going to be a king that has one of those defining moments that's a turning point in a good direction. Instead, Rehoboam in many ways is going to start as his father finished. And the people of God are going to continue to spiral down away from a relationship of faithfulness and obedience to him. But there is good news in the midst of this. And by the way, it's sort of hard sometimes to find how do we point directly to Christ in these stories of the kings. And later on, when we get into further stories of further kings, their idolatry, their sinfulness is going to be so vile at times it'll make our stomachs churn. But in the midst of this, we do have a reminder that God's character, like his word, never changes. I'm going to say that again because it's so important to, 
to remember why these stories matter. God's character, like his word, never changes. And because that's true, in the midst of all the inconsistency of the kings and the people of God, God himself is the rock. He is steady. And we have the benefit that the people of Israel in the days of Solomon and Rehoboam and the other kings did not have. We know the rest of this story. We know that God's character, which never changes, was perfectly displayed for us in Jesus Christ. They didn't know who Jesus was. We do. Not even the prophets fully understood who the Messiah was going to be. But we have this picture of God's unchanging character and all of the wonderful characteristics of God in Jesus in flesh and blood who we not only know about, but listen, today we can know him personally. So because of Jesus, we can look back and say, we see even clearer than these people did. Therefore, we have no excuse to not have Christ at the center of our hearts and lives. Where the people of God in these stories stray away and God is no longer at the center. May that never be said of us. So we continue on in our study of the kings. And the theme for today is defining moments. And Rehoboam, as he takes over the throne, specifically in Judah, he's in the southern kingdom right now, and he hasn't yet had any allegiance from some of the tribes in the north. Rehoboam, as he's king of Judah, has a lot of opportunities for these defining moments to point things in the right direction. The first one happens, as we read, Solomon died, Rehoboam succeeded him as king, and the question for Rehoboam is, how will your kingship start? This is a defining moment, Rehoboam. Will you seek God's glory, or will you seek your own? As we move to the next chapter, 1 Kings chapter 12, it's easy to miss, but this is significant, that Rehoboam starts his kingship not in Jerusalem, but in Shechem. What happened is that the people were already turning their hearts away from God. They were already following in the footsteps of their previous king, Solomon, worshiping the false dead gods of the nations and bowing down before idols. Because of that, they couldn't stand to be in Jerusalem. After all, that's where the temple was. That's where David had served God. That's where Solomon had built this house for the presence of the Lord to dwell within. No wonder they didn't want to be there because they knew in their hearts they were committing adultery against the living God. So the people are out in Shechem, and they say to Rehoboam, hey, we're not real comfortable in Jerusalem right now, so come out here to us, and here we will crown you as our king. In Shechem, where they were worshiping idols, the Canaanite gods, setting up the Asherah poles, all of that, that's the place where Rehoboam becomes king. So if we ask that question, how will, you, will your kingship start, seeking God's glory or your own, it doesn't start very well. And just like Rehoboam, the people too appear to be almost completely disinterested in who God would call them to be. As parents, Rebecca and I have always had the, the, the practice of praying with our kids. And especially when they were little, we would pray with them several times a day. You know, we'd pray before meals, but we'd also pray when we were taking them to school, when we were putting them to bed. We, we prayed a lot with our kids when they were young. 
And one of my favorite stories is of Aiden, who, by the way, is about to be a high school senior. Can't even believe that as a parent. But when Aiden was five, Rebecca was driving him to school, and she was praying with him as we always do. And Aiden interrupted her and said, I'd like to finish this prayer today. And, and so she said, okay. And here was Aiden's prayer. We've never forgotten it. God, please help Daddy, Mommy, and Noah to have a good day today. And God, I hope you have a good day too. Isn't that so sweet? He was so sweet when he was five. I'll tell you what. In the kingdom of Rehoboam, among the people of Israel, nobody cares about how God is doing anymore. Nobody's concerned with God's laws, God's commands, God's heart for his people. Even Rehoboam himself, the son of Solomon, the grandson of David, seems completely disconnected from caring about God whatsoever. He is at a critical point, a defining moment. How will your kingship start? Will you seek God's glory or your own? And then, then the next divining moment comes later on in the chapter. Rehoboam, who will you listen to? Because this is a, an important question that any person in leadership has to answer. In fact, I can remember my grandfather telling me this, and I've remembered it all these years when I was, was moving into adulthood. He said, a big part of wisdom is learning to listen to the right people. And that's important to know, listening to the right people. And, and people will tell you, lots of people will tell you what they think you should do or who, you should think, who they think you should be. You serve in leadership long enough, you're certainly going to learn that. If you don't do what they think you should do, they'll get upset. They might complain about you. They might complain to you. They might send you angry emails. They might talk behind your back. They might even pick up their toys and go home. Who are you going to listen to? Rehoboam, as the king now, again, mostly in Judah, in the southern kingdom, he's put in a position where he has to make an important decision. The entire assembly of Israel comes. So this is not just Judah, but people come from the north with a man named Jeroboam, who we'll talk about in just a minute. And they say to Rehoboam, your father was really hard on us. Your father Solomon had a massive kingdom, the biggest one that's, that there's ever been. It was so vast, it takes a lot of work to manage it, a lot of work to maintain it. And because of that, the labor that's been required has been harsh. Your father put a heavy yoke on us. But Rehoboam, if you will lighten that load, if you will lighten that yoke, we will serve you forever. So Rehoboam answered, I, I need a few days. Give me three days and, and come back, and I'll give you my decision. Again, wisdom. There's wisdom in listening to the right people. As followers of Christ, we have to ask the right questions about who we're going to listen to is is this person is this group is this pundit is this cable news show is this website is this thought is this idea is this opinion is it going to make me more like christ or as many of those things will do is it going to make me worse who are you going to listen to rehoboam well just like his father rehoboam had some elders around him solomon in all of his wisdom had appointed some older men older people 
to be in his life to speak to him to give him direction and some of those same people who spoke to Solomon were still alive so Rehoboam he, he flirts with wisdom here he goes to them first and and he asks what do you think I should do those elders who had served his father father Solomon during his lifetime how how would you advise me to answer these people and they replied well if you'll do what they're asking if you'll be a servant to them and serve them they will give you and give them a favorable answer they will always be your servants he got the advice he was looking for but look what Rehoboam did he rejected the advice the elders gave him and instead he asked his buddies what he thought they should do I was thinking back as I I was preparing for this to my days in high school I had lots of buds in high school we grew up together from middle school through high school playing sports together they were lots of good friends if I became the king of a powerful nation I would not go to most of them for advice especially not when we were that age Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders instead he consulted the young men who he had grown up with and they were serving him he asked them what's your advice how should we answer these people who say to me lighten the yoke your father put on us the young men his buddies who grown up with him what do you think they said he said those people who have said to you your father put a heavy yoke on us but make our yoke lighter now tell them my little finger is thicker than my father's waist now i'm going to pause here for a second and just acknowledge i struggled with whether or not i should share this with you so here's the best way i know how to do it if you read the literal hebrew of that last sentence that is not what rehoboam said that's not what his buddies told him to say they did not say tell him my little finger is bigger than my father's waist i'll let you do your own research or try to guess what he might have said but you hear these young testosterone filled virile young men they're speaking with this machismo bravado whatever you want to call it and they say don't you dare give those people an inch because what were they really asking for when they said lighten the yoke they said your father's kingdom was was a big responsibility but solomon's kingdom was the the, the most vast there had ever been the wealthiest so effectively what the people are asking Rehoboam to do is to give up power and to tighten the belts and to go through the budget cutbacks in the process basically to give up some luxury to give up some of what he had to give up some of his comfort to downsize his kingdom and as you know men in power rarely like to do things like that Rehoboam's buddies his entourage no if he gives them an inch they're going to take a mile and we're going to lose all the luxuries we have living in the palace with him so instead here was the response my father laid on you a heavy yoke but I will make it even heavier my father scourged you with whips I will scourge you with scorpions defining moment Rehoboam who will you listen to now there's an interlude here that's really important I mentioned Jeroboam a moment ago and and we need to come back to him because from this point on if you're reading through the stories of the kings with us you're going to see that there's almost always two kings not just one Rehoboam became the king of the southern kingdom but the 10 10 of the 12 tribes in the north rejected him especially because of the decision he just made listening to his buddies and then Jeroboam the first who had had been one of Solomon's officials in his court 
he takes the throne in the north, basically usurps half of the kingdom and says, it's mine. So now we have a divided nation where once under David, they were united. Under Solomon, God's temple was built, giving the people access to God's presence in their midst. All of those good things that happened now, not only have they turned their hearts away from God, but their nation is divided. Their communities are turning against each other. And Jeroboam, who was a savvy politician, he knew how to play the game, he knew how to schmooze, he had put himself in a position of authority. When Solomon got sick and Solomon was about to die, Jeroboam got a group of people to follow him. When Solomon died, now's the opportunity to try to, to take the throne yourself. And so that's what Jeroboam did. But what's interesting in this part of Kings is that God says, again, I'm going to step into this, and I'm going to show you that I've been in control all along. God speaks to Jeroboam, much like Rehoboam. You have an opportunity here. This could be a defining moment. You're now in charge of a lot of people. What will your leadership look like? And God says to Jeroboam, the other king, the same thing he said to Moses, to Joshua, to David, to Solomon, to Saul, to all of his leaders in the past. If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands, just as David, my servant, did, I will be with you. And I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David. I will give all of Israel to you. Again, this don't get them confused. This is not Rehoboam, Solomon's son. This is Jeroboam, the usurper of the throne. Even to him, God says, if you'll give me your heart, if you will put me as the living God at the center of your entire being, I will be faithful to you and bless you just as I promised. But unfortunately, Jeroboam, like all the kings we're going to see of the northern kingdom, chose to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He went to two different cities that have very important biblical names, Bethel and Dan, two cities where God had done some amazing things for his people in the past. You remember the story of Aaron? He allowed the people to build the golden calf while Moses was on Mount Sinai, and I guess they thought he waited too long, so they built this golden calf. They start to worship it as an, an idol. Well, Jeroboam outdoes Aaron. He builds two golden calves, one at Bethel, one at Dan, and the, the people called Israel, God's people, are now worshiping golden calves again. In addition to that, they now have altars to the Canaanite god Baal. They've set up those poles in the ground for the goddess Asherah. And so God says through the prophet, the lesser-known prophet Ahijah, he says to Jeroboam, I'm going to raise up a new king who will cut off your family. Even now, this is beginning to happen. The Lord will strike Israel so that it will be like a reed swaying in the water. In other words, what's going to come next? All that God has done for you and given you, the God who created you, the God who called you by his name, the God who led you out of Egypt and brought you into this amazing land where you've lived more blessed than anyone who's ever been alive. It's all going to be taken away. The Lord will strike Israel. He will uproot Israel from this good land that he gave to their ancestors and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they aroused his anger by making the Asherah poles. He will give Israel up because of the sins Jeroboam has committed and caused Israel to commit. 
those of us who are leaders, and all of us are leaders of someone, could be as parents, grandparents, friends, with, at work, wherever it is, all of us who have responsibility for someone else, this is a reminder, what Jeroboam has done is a reminder that our decisions matter and they affect other people. Because of his sins, the, the entire nation is going to fall. Like we've seen with other great civilizations in the history of the world, they may stand in power for centuries, and it only takes one generation or two generations for that civilization to fall because of their sin and their poor choices. Rehoboam, who will you listen to? Jeroboam, who will you listen to? And then the final defining moment. This is not about the two kings. But this one is God's people. So this is not about the person in the highest position in the land. Now this is about us. This is about God's people. Who will you worship and whom will you serve? Because listen, yeah, they had a, they had a couple of bad kings. They made some bad decisions. They weren't living in a democracy, a republic where they could vote. They were forced to deal with the decisions the kings made. But they didn't have to turn their hearts away from God. God's people are, are responsible for their own idolatry in this and their own sin. The people could have said, yes, we have bad leadership. Yes, our kings display terrible character. Yes, their policies are awful. Yes, they're trying to command us to do things that God told us not to do, but they didn't have to go along with it. We come to the end of Rehoboam's life, back to Solomon's son. And the words at the end of 1 Kings 14 read almost like an obituary. And if this is an obituary for Rehoboam, it starts off kind of normal, but boy, it doesn't end up in a good place. It's interesting, at, my, at the funeral where we were, I, I had a lot of, of, of unique thoughts. I, I mean, as a, as a minister, I've, I've been a part of a lot of funerals over several years. But there, was just, there were just some things about this one that really stood out. And one of the things that I thought about are... are was, was the words that we often use in, in services, especially really good memorial services where we're remembering a faithful person. We use words like remember. The most common command God gave to his people, remember me, remember. And, and we talk about today. And we use words like honor, faithful, thankful, home, love, generosity, service. We use those kinds of words and and we remember God's faithfulness, and we remember a faithful person. Rehoboam's obituary, the, the last description of him, starts sort of normal. He, he was the son of Solomon, who was king in Judah. He was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city the Lord has chosen out of all the tribes of Israel in which to put his name. His mother's name was Naamah. She was an Ammonite. It sounds pretty normal. But then it turns in a different direction. And again, this is about the people. Because what, what we're going to hear in most of the other descriptions is always going to be about the king. Either this king did right in the eyes of the Lord, or this king did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The way Rehoboam is remembered, and the way God closes this out, is talking about the people. It was the people, Judah, who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than those who were before them had done. They also set up for themselves high places, sacred stones, Asherah poles, on every high hill and under every spreading tree. There were even male prostitutes, shrine prostitutes in the land. 
The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. To say that these people had done more greater evil than had ever been done by God's people before? Do you remember the book of Judges? There's a lot of bad stuff in the backstory. But here God says they're even worse. They followed their bad leadership into their own sin and idolatry. And again, this is about the people of God. They abandoned true worship of the living God to worship those dead false gods and idols. And their own destruction accompanied them just like their kings. In fact, at the end of chapter 14, Shishak from Egypt comes in and plunders Jerusalem. He does detestable things in the temple, and he carries off all of Solomon's gold. Just as God warned them would happen, when their hearts turned away from him, the living God, to the dead, empty things of the world, the consequences that they brought on themselves followed. God's people, whom will you worship? And whom will you serve? It is really easy for us in our own time to look outside of the church, look all around us and say, boy, things are pretty bad out there. Look at, look at how terrible things are going. Look at our culture. Look how sick it is. Look at the way our nation seems to be just falling off into all of these evil things. But this is a reminder that if we only put our eyes outside and we fail to look inside our own hearts and our own community, we can easily fall into the same traps. Because here, God doesn't say, oh, it was all the nations of the world who did evil, or all those people who lived out in Shechem in that one little town. No, this was everybody inside the house, inside of the camp. Idolatry was among God's people. That's where it happened. And we too, boy, we can blame a lot of things on our leaders. We can blame a lot of things on our culture. But we too need to heed this warning that if we don't follow the commands, the statutes, the laws, the example of of godly character that Christ himself is, if we don't follow in those ways, we we ought not expect much better for our lives and for our communities. We have defining moments too. And we have the benefit, as I said earlier, we have the benefit that the kings and prophets in these days did not have. We know who Jesus is. And we know that as God's people today, he has called us to make sure Christ is at the center. When I look back over my life, I can see a lot of defining moments in my family, in in my academic life, in my ministry life, lots of different defining moments. But without question, the most important one was when I was 12 years old. And like the teenagers we saw today, I was sitting around a group of teenagers on a couch I had my, my head bowed, my eyes closed, and I knew that God was calling me to put Jesus Christ at the center of my life. And in that defining moment, I, I realized my need because of my sin. I confessed it. I committed my life to Jesus. I committed to turn from my sin, but also I said to the Lord, from this day forward, my life is yours. And that defining moment was a turning point. My life has never been the same. So this morning as I close, my, my simple question for you is a defining moment kind of question. Does Jesus Christ have your whole heart and life?
Has he ha ever had it? Have you given it to him for the first time? If not, you're going to have an opportunity in the very next moment to do that. But maybe you've done that before, but you would say, I have to answer honestly, no, right now, no. He does not have my entire heart and life. Then today, may I offer you a defining moment, opportunity, that your whole heart and life would be given to Jesus Christ, that you would look at him and say, you are worth it. You are worth every part of my being. And today, would you put Christ at the center of your very being?